I don't know that there is anybody like Joe, and and that's probably why there's not a a lot of other businesses like that. He truly did see the world differently. That's the voice of Patty Civilari, the co-author of Becoming Trader Joe. I love this book. It's one of the best books I've read about CEOs and entrepreneurs over the past five years. And in this show, we're going to hear a lot about Patty's writing partner and dear friend, Joe Coulomb, and what made him so special. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My conversation with Patty Civilari on the book Becoming Trader Joe is coming up next. I mentioned this is one of the best books by and or about a CEO or founder I've read in the past five or six years. And who are some of those names? Alan Mulally of Ford, for starters. Hunter Harrison, a four-time CEO in the railroad industry. Dick Stack of Dick Sporting Goods. Bill McDermott, former CEO of SAP. And now, Joe Colombe. I had no idea how intelligent and creative he was as he grew Trader Joe's into one of the most successful and iconic grocery chains in America. The first question I had for Patty Civilari was, what was Joe like? First of all, he had a presence. You knew when Joe walked in the room. Uh, he had a very relaxed swagger, a deep, booming voice, and a very, very ready smile, you know, and a, and a laugh, you know. I mean, he, he had a great sense of humor, and he, it's like sometimes at the oddest moments when you would think he was very intent and serious, he would just you know, hear something that you said, and it would just hit him, and he would just, he would roar. He was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. He was also um, an artist. You know, I sat next to him for five hours. I didn't one time. know that. <laughs> um, I know most people don't know that, and it doesn't say it, it doesn't talk about it in the book. I have I, I have three big observations, impressions, and I, let me just run through all three of them, and then you can tell me uh, fill in the gaps if you want. But first of all, I find his origin story instructive because he did not start out in the grocery industry. Now, some people say, yeah, but he was in the C-store industry. Oh, they're, they're different. So he, he, he was, to me, at the very essence of an entrepreneur. He figured things out. And he, oh, he, he, so right. he didn't go to a book like in the grocery industry. He didn't do what all other grocers do. He figured it out. So his again, his origin story, he, he was just in the truest sense of the word. He was put on this earth to do exactly what he did, to be an entrepreneur. By, and by so, the way, Patty, he, he could have done this at Apple. He could have done this anywhere. It just happened to be that it was. Oh, that's grocery. interesting. Yeah. I have to ponder that. The other <laughs> big impression, and of course, I'm a reader. I was amazed. And I had to realize, wait a minute, he, he graduated from Stanford. This guy probably had an IQ of 160, but this mm-hmm. guy read books like The Guns of August. Uh, he, he His favorite <laughs> magazine, The Scientific American, uh, Confessions of an Advertising Man, The Mythical Man Month, his favorite all-time management book, The Mythical Man Month. This guy 
was intelligent. Am I right on that? Extremely smart? Um, Very much so. But he also seemed to have, I don't know if this word is even appropriate anymore, but in the old days we called it a photographic memory. Um, Mm. And he he just retained everything. That's remarkable. Um, and, And then he he was a very visual person. And when you spoke to him or he was trying to explain something to you, you can see him look up to the right. Um, You can see him envisioning all these little pieces that he was putting together in his head visually, and they were coming out as his story or his explanation. And it was, you know, it was, but that was part of the artist in him as well. And speaking of being an artist, it's like he could take these ideas from a different canvas and apply them to his industry. I think that's what made his intelligence so unique. He could borrow from other disciplines and apply them directly. And that's what that's what I'm impressed with. It's not like he read lots of business books. He's reading all these history books, science books, and applying them. And and being an artist, that that's doubly impressive as well. There's another thing, there's another thing, and I know you're going to comment about this, and we're going to talk about this later. He cared about people. I mean, he cared about people. I have a quote that says, and I love this quote, this is the most important single business decision I ever made. Uh, Pay people well. People well. I love that. Is, is, Is that, can you add to that? Am I understating or overstating that he cared about people. He absolutely cared about people. In fact, all the way up until he passed away, the single most important thing to him were the people in his life. Um, but all the way up until he left the company in 1989, um, his employees were the single most important. He's, without his employees, he felt he had nothing. And his gratitude for his employees was huge because he felt he couldn't have gotten there without them. I mean, his employees, when he needed money, his employees reached into their pocket and said, here, Joe, we're backing you. We believe in this. We believe in you. And his gratitude was never ending. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just, just hearing that. Uh, you're going to find this maybe not humorous, fascinating. I'm in Missouri, and if we have any Trader Joe's, we certainly don't have them here in my college town of Columbia, Missouri. Uh, the, <laughs> first time, the first time I stepped into one was in Little Rock, where we have kids live, and I do like going there. So I don't, I don't have a big experience uh, with Trader Joe's. Now, if I lived in California – my questions might be different. So this is coming right from the book. But one thing I do know about Trader Joe's is I'd say their number one value, and this is when he owned it, the product knowledge. Would you say that's probably one of the top core values or the top, uh, what they were good at was just the overall product knowledge? Um, Yes, and they still are. Um, And it was really important to Joe that one of the things that would differentiate his store would be that every employee would know every product Mm. and they would get together in groups, you know, in the afternoons or weekends or whatever, and they would test new products. They would try new things. They would give their opinions. They would tell what they liked, they didn't like. But at the end of the day, they knew 
every product in the store. And um, I mean, I think that's huge because how often do you walk into a store where anybody knows anything at all? Right. Zero branded merchandise. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, not not in this story, but to to say back in the 1970s, we're not going to have any branded product. Someone would have said, you're crazy. This will never work. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. It is amazing. It is amazing. And, but you know why he did that? Because the big brands owned the grocers, they owned the retailers. Great they owned the point. store because they they paid for all of the advertising and the marketing, and they knew they had control over what products you were going to carry, how many products. They'd say, "Hey, we've got sixty products. You're going to carry all of them, and you're going to put all you know this selection of our products on your end caps, and you're going to sell them for this much." Even if this, you know, even if the store didn't like them, the stores stores have to do that when the big brands tell you to do it. Speaking of assortment, so the focus was not about price. It was assortment. I wrote down some notes on the types of SKUs that they carried, edibles versus non-edibles. Now, they did go through a time where they had non-edibles. There's an interesting story about bullets um, and, and, and some clothing items, but but it eventually became edibles. We already said no national brands. Uh, no fixtures, none, no fixtures whatsoever. I'm trying to remember from my last trip in Little Rock, were there fixtures? Is that still the case in all Trader Joe's? I actually don't know that. Um, you know, I've been into a number of stores, but I, I, I don't know that I've ever taken note of that. Um, you know, other than bare bones shelves, they usually use product, product to stack on product. Um, which is really interesting. So I, I, I really can't speak to that. Early, early in the book, I want to say it's in the first hundred pages, and he's talking about the concept of the store, all the SKUs having to stand on their own. I think it's in the beginning of chapter. I can't, I can't remember. I shouldn't even say the chapter, but it is at the beginning of, the, of a chapter. He's interviewing an MBA candidate. And let's just say it didn't turn out too well. She didn't get the job, but he was not one to hire MBAs. Why was that? Um, He felt that they were kind of in a box. Um, He needed people to think outside of a box. And he mentioned about how he felt he was different because he was left-handed. Do you remember that part? Yes, I do. No, I do. Yes. (laughs) And that was part of it. You know, he would rather he wanted people that that saw the world differently, that would think differently, that would uh, question him. 
um, that would have new ideas. And he didn't feel that people go to school to learn those traits. He feel that people people go to school to learn how to follow instructions. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, Patty, I think for the longest time, the only degreed person they had was their controller. Correct. So he had a four-year degree, but it sounds for like a the controller time. was very impressive. He didn't just do accounting work. I mean, he... I mean, he would do other types of work as well. If you don't mind, I want to, so let's move from inside the store to promoting the store because almost everything about Trader Joe's is unique. I mean, different is a word that just keeps popping into my mind. The fearless flyer. And by the way, is in this internet age, is the fearless flyer, is it still being published and mailed out? It is. It, it, is. it is. And at the time when it first came out, I think in the eighties, I don't know if that was the origin time period, the eighties, but I want to say five times a year, it was going out millions of people getting it. And that was, that was a different publication because it wasn't just, an advertising circular. I mean, it was explaining products, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And he, he got through a lot. He introduced people to a lot of products because they read the fearless flyer and um, it would familiarize people with like, like back then, like people didn't know how to drink wine as an example. Um, and he explained, well, here's a really great wine. It's from France. Here's what you can drink it with. Here's what it won't go with. You know, try it this way. But he does that with so, you know, he did that with so many things, getting people to try new things. And he introduced so many new things to America um, at the time to Southern California that, you know, wasn't uh, that weren't found in grocery stores back then he also figured out radio ads and i i <laughs> love that build up and and i i have it's been two weeks since i read the book i'd have to figure out how they figured this out but they came to the conclusion that we're not going to accept any like you said earlier we're not going to accept any uh co-op dollars from vendors suppliers we're not going to take their money and when we do an ad we're not going to do an ad on six, seven, 10 products. We're going to focus on one and tell a story for one minute. Yes. That was, that was different. No one was doing that. I don't know if that's still done today. Patty, is that, is that the case? I hear them periodically on the radio. Yes. Um, and, um, and I, it just reminds me of Joe and, but he did start that, you know, the old radio days and he loved it, but there were days where he would do, you know, 20, 30, 40 episodes in one day and just go home exhausted. Um, and, you know, he really, he, he took those radio, uh, ads to heart. And of course he had his wonderful sign off, right? Which was, this yes. is Joe Cologne. Thanks for listening. Yes. I wrote that down that that's so if that's a great trivia question, where did that come from? Oh my gosh. He did mention it in the book and I have to look at it. Do you remember? Did it you is write in it the down? book? I wrote it down. Uh, if you have the Kindle version, just look up. Thanks for listening. It's in the book. It's uh, fabulous. Yes. Remarkable. One more thing on promotion before we talk about people, non 
profits. Uh, I feel like I'm doing too much. I, as it, you probably haven't figured this out. I love this book. I, I could just talk about this for hours. So it's, I'm, I'm, I need to shut up. So I, I'm just delighted that you enjoyed it so much. To, to, Truly. What was his thing? Who did, who did he give to? And, and what was his thought process in dealing with nonprofits? Well, first of all, he didn't believe in giving to, uh, uh, I was going to say, I was thinking of discounts when you said that. I was thinking of, of senior citizen discounts because at the time he right. wouldn't uh, remember that. Yes. He didn't believe in giving senior citizen discounts. He felt like, hey, these guys have way more money than anybody else. Why are we giving them a discount? Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of nonprofits, he um, he helps a lot of the local nonprofits, or he did uh, very regularly. Um, And it was something that he believed in. One of the things he did is his wife started the Los Angeles Opera. And, um, and one of the things he did is he did a really neat thing for her. He would, uh, when he had the grocery bags, the paper bags printed up, on one side, he'd have the Trader Joe's logo, and on the other side, he would put the um, her, the opera schedule on the back of the bag. Because remember, Trader Joe's was very community Los Angeles oriented. Yes. So every bag that went out the store had the opera schedule on it. And he never, you know, that was one of the things that he uh, donated to them um, to help build the L.A. Opera, which today is is phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and no, you know, thanks in no small part to he and his wife. Re- regarding people, we talked about people earlier. I just want to run, share a few facts here. In fact, I'll do one at a time. No layoffs, zero, none. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how many recessions we went through while he was the owner of this organization leading it. Uh, none that I, it's like, is that correct? And I'm sure it is. Does that surprise you? No layoffs. Right. I mean, who could do that? I mean, back in the, in the day, IBM had, had a similar policy. Um, but eventually they, they threw in the towel. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that was Joe's policy. His employees, were, they meant everything to him. And the last thing he wanted to do was see any of these guys out of a job. And speaking of no layoffs related to that turnover, I got the impression there weren't any turnover numbers in the book. Uh, It was just very little, almost next to none. And again, that was, again, that tells you something about the company itself. Is it still that way today? You know, I can't speak to that. Trader Joe's is a very, you know, very um, private company. Um, and yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I can't really speak to, uh, you know, how they're doing things today. Before I rattle off some more facts about people, here are some n- more numbers. 19% compound annual growth rate over 26 <laughs> Years. That's an astounding that, number. That is, I, I don't think that's happening at your local Kroger Safeway. <laughs> uh, in my neck of the woods, we have Deerberg's, Hy-Vee, 
uh, schnooks. I don't think that's the case, Patty. <laughs> uh, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're pretty safe in saying that. <laughs> this is pretty amazing. You're in the last 13 years, again, when he was at the helm, no debt, zero, none. Mm-hmm. During the time he owned it, and this would be after, again, you, um, when I say you'll have to read the book, the, the story starts after he buys out Rexall and he has to exit the C-store business and then he starts the grocery business. They never lost money, not not even that first year, none, no money lost. And then here is another phenomenal stat. Each year was more profitable than the last. Now, Patty, you got to work with him on this book. Which of these numbers impresses you the most? Probably the growth record. I think that's an astounding number. Um, I, you know, I've been, my husband and I are both entrepreneurs and we've been in that world our whole lives. And I just don't know anybody that's grown like that. It's just wonderful. And he did it with no technology. He did it you know, with, with absolutely no support from the world, you know, um, he didn't get any support from his big vendors. He got no support from the grocery industry. He got nothing but, but problems from the unions and he got nothing but problems from, you know, the big grocery industry. He just did it on his own. And I, I am, I will always be completely blown away by, by what he did. It's just impossible. It seems impossible. There's a reason, Patty, I wanted to read those stats first because I want to come back to people. The median salary back in the late 1980s was, I've written down $32,000. I think that number's correct. Mm -hmm. That sounds about right. On average, he paid his full-time employee 20,000, right? <laughs> 25,000, 30,000. No, he paid 34,000. He paid over the median income yeah. in California. So all those numbers, never having a loss year, each year better than the last, all those growth years, he was doing it, paying people, not just well, better than what most people were experiencing in that California market. You know, you're right. And there's something kind of counterintuitive there because when you're a small, young, growing entrepreneur, the last thing you want to do is overpay people because I mean, overpay anything because you're, you're pinching pennies and you're barely getting paid yourself. And that is the story of, of, you know, starting a new business. Right. But Joe felt uh, that the highest, his understanding was that the high, one of the highest costs of doing business is employee turnover. Mm-hmm. And so if he could get in higher quality individuals, um, educated individuals, he was willing to pay more for them. He was, uh, he was willing to, um, you know, educate them and, um, but it reduced his turnover, which actually led to improving his bottom line. So with, with a reduced turnover, he had, uh, a very reduced employee overhead, um, which is interesting because, I mean, I run a couple of companies. I've been a CEO, and I know that employee turnover is just really expensive. 
really expensive. And he just didn't have a lot of turnover. There are two types of turnover. There's the turnover that hurts more than the other. So you've got people who are working inside the store and then he, his managers, he calls them captains. Mm -hmm. They were making 70, they could make up to, let me correct that. They could make up to 70% of base pay. That, that is mind boggling. So I'm assuming there was next to no turnover with the managers slash captains. Does, does right. that sound right too? Yeah. And I mean, by the time you were a captain, you were, you were, you know, you were uh, what, what he would call the, his, um, his true followers. Um, and, you know, he knew you were, you were there for life and he, he rewarded you for it. Do you mind if I just list out a couple of the big ideas. I have a list. How long is my list? My list is about 21 items. I'm not going to read through all, all 21 of them, <laughs> but just to show how, how, and I'm going to hit these randomly, but for example, he built, we'll talk about people. He built overtime into the system. So is it, did I read that correctly? That people are going to be guaranteed so much, wages because of overtime regardless, right? Right. Uh, again, that's, that's phenomenal. He talked about leases, long-term leases and how those, mm -hmm. and for anyone that works in any type of industry where you have what I call physical units, physical real estate, this is a great section of the book on long-term uh, leases, uh, especially like the 15 year leases. It's very pragmatic. And I would highly recommend that again, anyone that's in a real estate intensive industry like this one. Do you remember Patty? <laughs> and I know it's been a while since you wrote this, but the whole concept <laughs> of discontinuities is in my opinion, this is MBA material. Uh, and I think the context where that came up was eggs, a large triple A size or the large grade aid. Extra large eggs. Yes. Yes. He, yes. He liked to say that that's how Trader Joe's was laid was through, was through the extra large eggs. And that is such a fun story. White papers. We had on someone who wrote the book, the Amazon way. So we learned about the, what used to be, Amazon's guiding 14 principles. And one of the principles is writing uh, white papers. And he was doing this when mm -hmm. there was a big turn of events or something big about to happen. He would go home or whatever and just write a long white paper. He'd reread it and then he'd share it with his team. Brilliant. Why, why aren't more people <laughs> I'm talking to, since I'm talking to a CEO, why aren't more people doing this? Right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I think that one of the things that people need to do as, as founders is work with their team more, you know, trust them more. And that was one of his things is, is, is the importance of trusting, uh, trusting your, your, uh, your workers, you know, the people that are working for you. Um, and if you're not doing that, what, why are they there? Right. Why are you spending? Why are you spending money on them? If you if you don't trust them, they need to take things off your shoulders, not keep them on. As you as you were involved in this writing project, you ever just step back and think, 
This is brilliant. For example, double entry retailing. I read it twice. Double entry retailing, I think, is really is broken out, is fleshed out in two chapters. So you had the demand side and the supply side of the business, but he called it double entry retailing. Again, that was we're talking MBA content that I'd never have seen written in such that manner uh, before. As the author, did you think, where's this stuff coming from? I liked his perspective because, like you said, this isn't stuff that you would normally read in a typical book or in most typical business books. Um, I loved his perspective. And, and you know, every time when I read this book, I can hear his voice. He He was the first person to accept, or I think one of the first retailers, or at least in the grocery industry, to accept Visa. And I have to correct myself. Master, you remember you and I Master are probably old, charge. You remember we're old enough to remember when it was called Master Charge. Yes, <laughs> but, yes. But he was one of the first to accept uh, those five-year plans. Oh yes. And in fact, I have a couple of those that he, he wrote. He he gave them names, didn't he? Could you clarify? So when he talked about a certain five-year plan. Again, he gave it a name. Did they actually try to follow that to the T or as closely as possible over that ensuing five years until they got to the next five years? Um, yes. He, I mean, that was the whole point of writing it is he basically wanted to lay out a lay out a track, um, you know, the track to run on. And obviously he wasn't glued to it. It, because things happen in life, things happen in the world and in business. Um, but it really did give him really good patterns to go on. Um, and I have a couple of them that he wrote. I have them in longhand. Wow. Gosh, I have to dig those out. Um, but he wrote them out in longhand and he photocopied them. He <laughs> Xeroxed them, right? Remember that word? Yes. Um, he Xeroxed them back then and uh, made dittos, uh, which is what he called them, and uh, passed them around to his employees. Um, and they would talk about the direction they were going in, what was going to be new and different, um, you know, how he was sort of building that foundation as he went. And um, But his plans were genius. He... <laughs> He was a genius. <laughs> I have a couple of quotes. Actually, I highlighted a lot of my favorite quotes. One of them being, I believe in the wisdom that you gain customers one by one, but you but lose, you them, lose in droves. them in droves. And yes. I bet you can hear him saying that to you in your left ear right now. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, there was another one that had to do with uh, one of my very favorite ones. Uh, his quotes was, it had to do with the wine industry. And uh, when he figured out um, how to get past the existing wine regulation in California, he says, boy, we found a, a loophole in the law and we drove a truck through it. Yes, that's in the book. <laughs> yep. Great, great section in the book. Uh, back on people again, he says, cost of goods is the dominant expense. The funny thing is that grocers seem to spend more effort squeezing payroll than squeezing costs of goods sold, though there's at least five times more opportunity to save money uh, in the latter. It's like, think of that. Isn't that an interesting perspective? Oh, gosh. Uh, it's kind of counterintuitive. I mean, your, your payroll is one of your biggest expenses. So you, you, 
you know, intuitively, you want to figure out how to whittle that down as much as you can. And but he saw it differently. And you're absolutely right for pinpointing that. He he loved employee ownership. So there's a time period that the employees own the business, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and the thing I also want to just mention briefly before we have to let you go, which again, if you if you ever if you ever cannot fill if you ever cannot uh, fulfill a, a podcast commitment, I think I can fill in for you. <laughs> uh, I, I've got this book down. I love it. I know we should go on the road. <laughs> the, the last, and by the way, this, this was, I don't know if this was subtle or not, but the last section of the book. So he ends up retiring, but then mm-hmm. he becomes a consultant and he lists a lot of the businesses he got to work with. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. this is a great exit plan. I'm just thinking of all the CEOs who are just listening is they're sitting at his feet listening. And, and I know there were some sick success stories as a consultant. Did you, did y'all get to talk much about those consulting years and what it was like for him? Um, yes, actually. Um, and it, he, he actually really enjoyed them. He, he enjoyed, um, he enjoyed working for the other companies. He liked taking companies and seeing his challenge, his personal challenge, just was to see if he could turn them around because typically he was being introduced into companies that had a lot of troubles or a lot of issues. Um, although given all of that, he did have some regrets about selling Trader Joe's and leaving the company. Um, and, you know, when he talked that way, I, I'll tell you, you'll get a tear in your eye. Um, mm-hmm. he, yeah, he um, he did have some personal regrets about leaving the company, uh, but he knew that he was you know, that the the recession that he saw, economy that was coming, he saw um, a lot of things coming in the future that he knew he wasn't equipped to handle, and he needed outside help. He needed to turn the reins over. And after it happened, I I know that he did regret it. But he did enjoy the relationships that he made with the other companies. And today I can walk into some of those other companies, the Costco's um, and the, uh, the the world markets um, and walk into those. And I can see his fingerprints as I walk down those aisles. This, this may be a hard question to answer, Patty. It may be an unfair question. But maybe over the past five, eight, maybe even 10 years, have you ever come across anyone close to or similar to Joe? No. That's what I no. thought. That's what no. I thought. I don't know that there is anybody like Joe, and and that's probably why there's not a, le- a lot of other businesses like that. He truly did see the world differently. Um, and it's it's so seeable. Every time you walk into that store today, you can see every page of the book in the store today. It's an amazing, it's an amazing process. Um, and he really did leave his footprints in the world. Am I allowed to ask, and I don't know if this came out in the book, do we get to hear how you became associated uh, with Joe and this book project? Um, yeah, Joe, Joe, 
Joel dealt with what he called his insiders. He didn't like to bring people in from the outside whenever he needed a project done. And Joe and I knew each other socially because his best friend was also my husband's best friend. And so over the course of 20 odd years, we had gotten to know each other because we were going to the, uh, you know, a number of uh, similar functions together. So, which was lovely. And um, when it came time to doing the book, Joe had sort of a dislike for very large corporations. He mm-hmm. felt that if he couldn't look you in the eye and shake your hand, he wasn't interested in doing business with you. You know, he didn't want to do business with a voicemail or an email. He wanted to do business with a person. So when it came time to doing this book, um, he didn't know what to do. He had kept these journals and he didn't know he was moving and was packing his boxes and he found these old journals, didn't know what to do with them. So he gave them to his best friend, who was also the first employee of of Trader Joe's, um, Mr. Leroy Watson. And Leroy Watson and my husband were best friends. And so Leroy took the journals and didn't quite know what to do with them. And he came to me and said, you know, would you be, you know, could you help me do something with this? And uh, he got Joe's permission and Joe said, oh, sure, you know, I know her so we can do this. She's not an outsider. Um, And so there's that level of trust, you know, that was already there. And that was really great. Um, But now it was a question of, of, you know, taking the journals and turning them into in, into a book. And um, our publisher has been fantastic um, and everybody's been wonderful, uh, you know, and real helpful on the project. But the reception of the book has just been so phenomenal and very overwhelmingly positive. We are absolutely thrilled. I did a book signing recently with Joe's wife, Alice, and uh, we had so much fun. It was standing room only. Um, you know, she and I, well, she's 89 years old now, okay. a question mark. Um, and she and I did a book signing and we signed 200 odd books that night, which is a lot when you're thinking about how many times you're going to write your signature. <laughs> and it's just been such a delight to see how well this story has been received. I am so happy to hear that. I read between 120 and 150 books a year. Oh my. And there's always going to be about five to 10 that really stand out. And so far I've already read 30 books so far this year. This this is by far number one. And I'll even go back in the last five years. This is probably one of the top five books I've read. So I don't take this lightly. Oh my. This is a great, great read. Again, there's so much wisdom uh, packed in uh, to this, this book. And I would recommend to anyone, read it, listen to it, or listen to it, then read it. But take, you're going to need to take notes because some of the things you'll learn, you probably want to apply them similarly to whatever business. And you don't need to be in the grocery industry to That's apply correct. this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you were not you're not a stranger to writing books before we leave. Can we learn more about your business? You do a fair amount of traveling. Is that correct? Oh, that's correct. Um, my background, I spent 16 years on the director's council of the Coatsen Institute of Archaeology at UCLA and which gave me sort of the, the honor of traveling with 
scientists, archaeologists and anthropologists and geologists, every kind of scientist you can think of, uh, in search of lost and ancient cultures. And so we went on, for 16 years, we went on a number of expeditions. Uh, and it was really an Indiana Jones in high heels kind of a uh, an experience for me. Um, and I, as a writer, I, you know, when you travel that way, you become very good at traveling. You you become very good at understanding history and and the history of humankind and how we evolved. And so one of the things, uh, being very good at traveling, um, I realized there was a, a very large gap in the kinds of travel books that have you know, come to market in the last 30 or 40 years. And that we're all taught to travel um, in herds and very shallow. Uh, we don't travel deep. We don't get to know the cultures that we're visiting. So I, I set out to fill that gap. And um, and I write for my audience are, I guess, sort of the overeducated and underpaid, right? Mm. Um, my, my audience are people that want to know more and go deeper and they have better questions and um, they want to get away from the crowd instead of become one of the crowd. And so that's the world that I write for. And I specialize in Italy because they've got some of the coolest archaeology in the world. I always like to know where did I find about this book? So your book particularly comes to mind, Becoming Trader Joe. Where did that book idea come from? Well, last year I read the book, The Secret Life of Groceries by Benjamin Lore. Mm -hmm. The first chapter is dedicated to Trader Joe. Yeah. And it was outstanding. And of course, as I'm reading your book is like, yeah, I remember that from Ben's book. So I, I just wanted to say that that book led me to this one. And I'm so glad that, and I've even told Ben, Hey, I got to chat with you. Have, have, has that book come up on your radar yet? Yes, it has. I read it. What did it's you wonderful. Think? I loved it. I loved it. I read it a couple of years ago um, and I loved it. Um, and I, you know, I'm thinking, gee, he did such a wonderful job. I, I, it was actually sort of a challenge to me to, um, uh, to find different angles and to work with Joe and figure out, you know, different angles, um, that, that hadn't been included. And on Joe, of course, just has a depth that just came automatically. Um, and his stories, his journals, his personality is so deep. There was just no trouble coming up with, you know, making this all work and come together. Well, you guys nailed it. Joe's going to be missed, isn't he? He is so missed. You have no idea. He is so missed. <laughs> Patty, Absolutely. Patty, you have no idea. I, I cannot, A, thank you enough for writing this book. <laughs> And B, oh. and B saying, yes, Marga, I, I love to chat with you. This has just been phenomenal. This show will have a very long shelf life. Uh, I'll be pointing people uh, to this show for a long time. And so, <laughs> again, I'm thrilled to have gotten to, to meet you and chat with you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted that you invited me to come um, and speak with you today. And and you are just so lovely to work with. I really appreciate it and appreciate your patience. <laughs> but I'm absolutely delighted that you enjoyed the book so much and made it all worth it. 
You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. My one regret in this interview, Patty Civilari is a person I would have really have liked to interview in person. Great book, great person, great author. By the way, I suppose I should not be surprised. There is a Harvard case study on Trader Joe's, and yes, I bought it, and I'm going through it right now. There was so much we did not touch on the book during this conversation, wine being a huge focal point in Trader Joe's stores. That's covered well in the book. Very fascinating on dealing with unions and, oh, the Department of Labor. That part was painful to read. And also about the small store formats and the why. And finally, we did not touch on the Aldi acquisition, which is also covered very well near the end of the book. Financials, there were none. And how I wish there would have been some numbers. Uh, 2011, let me read off just a couple of margins. Kroger's gross margin in 2011, 21%. Whole Foods, I would say similar to Trader Joe's, they had a 35% gross margin compared to Kroger's 21. I'm betting Trader Joe's gross margin was even higher than Whole Foods. Uh, net margin, you, you probably know that the grocery store industry has very, very low net margins. Kroger's is less than 1%. Well, Whole Foods was over 3% in 2011. And again, I bet Trader Joe's was even higher than that. Maybe pushing 5%? I don't know. Well, anyway, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Thank you for listening.